The whole idea of that particular polar plunge was to show how warm things were getting in Antarctica. If you look at that clip carefully, you'll see a couple of penguins jumping over my legs. Some people like to swim with dolphins. I like to swim with penguins. <laughs> That's Mark Terry, award-winning documentary maker, geographer, author, and polar explorer. He's our guest on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. Welcome to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. I'm your host, David McGuffin. A shout out to Ted Battens of Belleville, Ontario, who sent in a lovely photo of where he was listening to Explore, in his case, on the Bay of Quinte on Lake Ontario, where he says he was listening to episode three of our summer canoe series. Thanks, Ted. I've pinned that photo to my Instagram. We'd love to see photos of where you are listening to Explore. Tag us on Instagram at Cangio and at david.mcguffin or on Twitter x at Cangio and at McGuffinDavid. You can also email us at explore at canadiangeographic.ca. Again, explore at canadiangeographic.ca. And a reminder that the annual RCGS Fellows Dinner is on November 15th at the Canadian War Museum. It's now named Geographica. And it's a lot of fun, no matter what it's called. Great speakers, great food, and a fun crowd. You can get your tickets at rcgs.org forward slash geographica. So I'm really thrilled to have Mark Terry with us today. He's had a long and interesting career that includes everything from being a newspaper reporter for the Toronto Star to making a documentary about Master of Horror, Clive Barker, to his ongoing innovative work at the UN producing groundbreaking documentaries about the impact of climate change on our polar regions. He is a fellow of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, the Royal Society of Canada, and is an adjunct professor at York University and Wilfrid Laurier. And he has a new book out, Speaking Youth to Power, Influencing Climate Policy at the United Nations. Mark Terry, welcome to the Canadian Geographic Explore podcast. Hey, thank you, David. Glad to be here. Yeah, Yeah, well, it's great to have you here. I mean, this is a chance for me to person to person, first of all, to say thank you, because you were one of our polar plungers in March this year. Um, We had a big cross cross the country polar plunge event. um, And you were part of the Lake Ontario Toronto crew, I believe. Is that right? That's right. And uh, uh, I should point out that I stayed in the water the longest of everybody. (laughs) Well, yeah, no, there's video of that. There's, there's, (laughs) clear proof that that is absolutely true so and so that i mean that's that's the main way we we fund this podcast so i mean i can't thank you enough and you guys are all amazing but uh in 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 just doing a little research on this talk with you i um found a clip of you in antarctica Ah. also floating around in in antarctic waters which i'm guessing are even colder maybe than lake ontario yeah yes yeah it was minus one or minus two the water was yeah so it was extremely cold and if you look at that clip carefully you'll see a couple of penguins jumping over my legs ah (laughs) how was that yeah well some people like to swim with dolphins i like to swim with penguins (laughs) with the penguins that's fantastic yeah minus two because the salt water that's right right. the salt water keeps it from freezing solid but yeah yeah it was uh wow very 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 cold (laughs) no wetsuit too mark i was noticing that's right Uh, you're a bold man man for my own heart the whole idea of that particular polar plunge was to show how warm things were getting in antarctica it, it was yeah. part of one of the films I did. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, and you've done a, a whole series of fascinating films on, on our polar regions, and I definitely want to get to that. One of the things I'm always curious about um, when we're talking to our explorers is what, you know, where, where this spark for adventure, the spark for travel, where that came from. So, I mean, wh- wh- where did Mark Terry's life begin? What, what were your parents up to? What, what's that part of your life like? Well, that that's, that's interesting to go all the way back that way. Um, my father was an insurance salesman. My mother was a stay-at-home mom uh, back in the 50s, right? That's That was the, yeah. the standard kind of composition of parents. And yeah. um, my father would rent a cottage at Lake Simcoe in the summer. So mm-hmm. I guess my early days of exploration kind of began there, where I just kind of wandered around the lake and uh, the country roads and found things. And um, I was given a lot of freedom uh, at a very young age uh, to yeah. wander around like that. And, and, and I enjoyed it. Um, my brother, my brother Herb, would take me to the Don Valley here in Toronto. And, oh, um, nice. Yeah. And, and we would explore the Don River and, uh, and other things yeah. around there. So before the before the parkway went through, presumably is that yes? No, actually no. It was during. Uh, it was the during. It was yeah. there. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. we didn't uh, play on the roads, of course, but <laughs> <laughs> we explored the rest so, of the valley. Yeah. So where where was so where was home then in Toronto? It was in East York. Okay, Canada's nice. only borough. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. My my dad grew up in the Don Valley, but before well before you, but oh, in yeah. the thirties, yeah. And so he remembers that being farmland, and there's a brickyards there, and there was, yeah, a hobo encampment in the nineteen thirties and stuff like that. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, now the, yeah, Toronto has Toronto's changed. Yeah, yeah. The the other thing that that really kind of got me interested in in global exploration was a, mm-hmm. a subscription that my eldest brother um, Rob, um, we called him Chip. But he got me a subscription to, um, I believe it was Canadian Geographic magazine for kids back then. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that well, was the thing. This yeah, was like sure. a junior version of Canadian mm-hmm. Geographic. And uh, and I loved getting that once a month. And I could see the world that way long before the internet, right? Yeah. 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 No, and that we and we hear that quite often that having that even the the the, the Canadian in the magazine itself Canadian Geographic just sitting on tabletops and yeah. stuff and or coffee tables people would you know you flip through and you see these places that are way off in the distance and Yeah, very and inspiring. Sparks actually. imagination. Yeah. Yeah, and that and they had maps in them and they still do have maps in them. <laughs> yeah. I love a paper map. Yeah, me too. <laughs> There's something about it, you know. I mean, obviously GPS and everything like that is, and it's hugely helpful if you are out in the out in the wild. And but having a map that spreads out, there's just something about the expanse of it, you know. Like you're not so focused in that. I find really well. I, that's I right. You know, uh, I work with a lot of digital maps, of course. Um, yeah, but it's a little different to have a paper map that you can open up and see everything all at once, right? Yeah. And then you yeah. can just move the map around this way and look at things. A uh, digital yeah. map, you need a mouse to kind of crawl around and expand and all this. Yeah. It's a different yeah. interface, but yeah. Yeah. Something about just tracing the contour lines with your finger or something like that, or the roads or the, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's lovely. But, um, so yeah, so I mean that's we've. I, I will also say we've had a lot of people who come on and said uh, a cottage is a big factor in this, and just yeah. 
the idea of being like a little kid and just being able to wander off and you know your parents are fairly certain nothing that bad can happen you're not in the city anymore and yeah. or just the being able to paddle out of a bay in a canoe on your own for the first time oh you know, yeah or whatever, whatever that is yeah 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 now my, my father had a little game where he would um uh throw money in the lake <laughs> yeah and um and i'd have to go snorkeling to find it you know yeah and uh and often i would find other things so oh, amazing the yeah. whole exploring and discovering uh sort of thing uh happened very young <laughs> that's fantastic yeah. so where was was there a, a trip that you know where you were like finally okay yeah this i need to be figuring out how to do this more and make this part of my life Ah, well, it's, it's hard to say because there are so many, um, very interesting trips that I took, not necessarily for the purpose of exploring, but usually I'd like to travel to places that are off the beaten path to begin with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's very clear. (laughs) If you look at your CV. (laughs) Well, one of my, my first big trips, I I think, um, in, in those terms is a trip to Transylvania. Oh, wow. Yeah, I did that in the 1980s when they opened the borders to tourism for the first time. Yeah, and uh, Romania, which was a Soviet republic at that point. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Ceausescu was running it at the time. Yeah, yeah. um, didn't end well for him. (laughs) Yeah, and and that was a real shock to see um, cities, but being operated in a very different way. Mm -hmm. You know, lineups for gasoline that were like miles long, abandoned cars, where they just went home and then come back the next day to keep their place in line just to get gasoline. Wow. Yeah. yeah. But there were movie theaters, everything looked strangely familiar, but it was also very different at the same time. And, uh, and of course we um, made a, a tour of Dracula's castle and, and all that sort of thing, which to them wasn't really a tourist attraction thing they, they were kind of curious as to why we wanted to see uh, Vlad Tepes in his uh, castles um, but they soon found out that this was a big deal, right? So um, they put on a, a beautiful show for us. And um, again, it showed me uh, a very different approach to tourism. And and that whole experience made me think, I wonder what the other countries are like. Yeah. And, and so, you know, before that, I did the traditional uh, European tours of, you know, Paris and Venice and to the backpack around, yeah, yeah, that sort of thing, and and I love seeing all the the differences there as well. But it's these places off the beaten path that I found um, to stimulate my curiosity most. Yeah, yeah, I think when you do a, go to a place like that, that is sort of off the beaten path, and it's, I mean, that was definitely in the late in the eighties. That was really off the beaten path, wasn't it? It was. I mean, people, it's hard to get there, right? Yeah, and to to do that and know and then succeed at doing that is, you know, it's it's very satisfying, isn't it? Oh, you know, it is. Like, it, it really is. You know, to to know you're going to a place that very few people have ever seen. Um, mm-hmm. To me, as a former journalist, I love that idea of collecting yeah. information and sharing it with people. Yeah, uh, people who weren't there or can't be there or have no intention of going there, but are still yeah. curious about it nonetheless. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was probably one of those guys with the boring slideshows and look at this. Look at this. <laughs> <laughs> They're always better with beer. Those things for sure. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, so t- tell me about journalism. Where, where did that begin and where did that take you? Well, it began at uh, York university when I was doing my undergrad there, I worked for the, 
uh, the Glendon campus's uh, school paper called uh, Pro Tem. And, mm -hmm. um, and I just wrote movie reviews and, you know, things like that. Uh, but I, I love the idea of doing that. And I also um, had a radio show at the CKRG. Um, oh, great. And uh, that was a, a campus radio station, too. And, and so I was always kind of um, talking about things that were going on around campus or things going around the city. And, um, and that kind of made me think with an English degree that I was uh, pursuing at the time, uh, journalism was probably a place I should, I should look towards for a job afterwards. And um, I ended up getting um, uh, an associate editor job at the Toronto Sun. And I did that while I was finishing my degree as well. So that was a full-time job uh, working the, uh, the graveyard shift, uh, well, 3 p.m. to 11 p.m., putting the paper to bed. Um, and then um, I did that for a couple of years, and then I went to the Toronto Star as a reporter. So I was just a cub reporter. They would give me soft assignments, like the opening of the new YMCA, you know. <laughs> so I'd go there and take some pictures and interview people, and, and I, I really enjoyed that. Um, but shortly after that, I got married, and um, I was working for another newspaper called the Canadian Register. And it was one of Canada's oldest newspapers at the time. I never heard of it before. But um, in my first year there, we were celebrating our 150th anniversary. So I went, whoa, this is um, a paper with legacy. Um, I don't even know if it's around anymore. I, yeah, I don't even recognize the name. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, we've lost so many papers, too. So Yes, yeah. of course, yeah. Um, anyway, I did that as long as I could, and, and then I, um, I changed gears, and I got into uh, real estate with my, uh, uh, my wife at the time. Her family had a, a real estate business, so I helped out with that. Um, but at the same time, um, I still didn't give up my, my journalism and started another magazine called Hollywood Canada, and that was a controlled circulation publication. It was national, and um, some people remember... Uh, our unique distribution plan, where every time you ordered a pizza from Domino's, you would get a copy of our magazine. Yeah, no way. Yeah, that's pretty genius, actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that that's how we had our home delivery. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Which then, I mean, so there is a shift that comes into documentary work, and I, I'm guessing it's riding on the tails of that. Is it? Yeah. Well, well, that's right, because. Um, uh, in between, there was a, a tiny transition to live theater. Um, Hollywood Canada Magazine heard that the Bayview Playhouse in Toronto was going to be um, um, torn down or, or closed and demolished for uh, another building. And we didn't want to see that happen as an arts publication. And so we bought the theater. And, um, and at that time, I began to uh, produce live shows there um, and also use the venue um, as a studio for doing uh, documentary films. So when we didn't have a live show on, I would interview people um, on the stage and, uh, and do a series of short documentary uh, films. Uh, the first one was with Clive Barker. And that wow. One, yeah. That's a name. Holy yes. Jumping. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, a lot of young people today never heard of the guy. And I said, hey, if you like horror, you got to know Clive Barker, right? Yeah. So, I mean, Hellraiser was the one I definitely remember. Yeah. But uh, he's, I mean, he's author and filmmaker, right? Director. and Oh, he's a bit of everything. Um, the film we made was called The Art of Horror because he's yeah. so multidisciplinary in his approach to uh, the genre. 
he was a painter. He was a comic book illustrator. Um, in addition to being a playwright and a filmmaker and an author. Yeah. And so, a master um, of horror. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so surprisingly, um, Paramount Pictures saw it at a Vancouver film festival and mm -hmm. um, they approached me and, and wanted to release it theatrically. Now, I think I'm only 25 years old at the time, and I'm thinking, oh, this filmmaking is pretty easy. <laughs> <laughs> so, but again, documentary film is very much um, uh, related to journalism um, yeah. in the sense of interviewing on camera and um, collecting B-roll. Uh, it's like doing research. So the, it was very similar to, to make that transition, and video just uh, was invented at that time, too. So broadcast journalism is where I kind of uh, steered into. I mean, not to jump too far ahead, but at some point, I mean, and you did, you worked sort of in that sort of more entertainment field and doing that sort of work for a while. But at some point in the past 15, 20 years, you've really made a shift to doing nature documentaries yeah. and really focused on our polar regions. And I'm just, what what was it about our polar regions that sort of sparked your interest and made you realize that this was something you wanted to really drill down on? Well, it probably started with um, a show that I did for the Discovery Channel in the U.S. called Earth's Natural Wonders. Mm -hmm. and, um, and for that film, I went to the Kenai Peninsula in Alaska. And and I fell in love with the majesty of the uh, the glaciers and, uh, and the mountains and the the largeness of nature, right? And and I wanted to see more of that. So that kind of brought me um, to, I think we're, I guess I'm around 50 years old now. And, uh, and I had shot a documentary film on every continent on earth, except one, and that was Antarctica. So what I thought I would do um, for my 50 year old bucket list sort of thing was to um, go to Antarctica. Now, coincidentally, uh, that year was International Polar Year. So I actually had a story to cover. So I would go down there where all the scientists were embedded, uh, concentrating their research on uh, um, Antarctica, and, um, and just interview them and, and do a story about that. So that's what I did. And as it turned out, I believe I was the only filmmaker to actually make it. Um, a couple of others tried, but they had bad weather and... Um, ship problems and things like that, that they didn't quite uh, make it there or, or get a film made. Um, but we had beautiful weather when we got there, luckily enough, and we were able to make uh, the Antarctica Challenge a global warning. Now that film was done for the CBC and uh, PBS in the States and ZDF in Germany. Mm -hmm. and, and when that came out, uh, the United Nations took interest. Um, they were having a large um, climate summit, uh, COP15 in Copenhagen, and um, they wanted to showcase all the research from International Polar Year. Well, they had an awful lot of information from the Arctic because that's reasonably accessible, and uh, but they had nothing from Antarctica because most of the scientists doing that research were still down there. And so they asked the scientists, well, what can we do? We, we want to present some of your work. And and they suggested they contact me because I did this documentary. So they said maybe um, that film can uh, be a surrogate to our presence, you know. And so they contacted me and they asked for a DVD. Remember DVDs? So, yeah. 
They were a thing once. Yeah. yeah. And they said, can you please send us a DVD? And they watched the film. And they got back to me and said, uh, we'd like to invite you and the film to come to um, to COP15 in Copenhagen. So that that began my relationship with the United Nations. Mm-hmm. Um, Wait, so what year is this we're looking at? Now? 2009. 2009, right. Yeah. And um, by showing the film there, it was the first time that a, that a film was being used as a, a as an official data delivery system uh, for the delegates and negotiators attending the conference. Um, prior to that, and even still today, uh, they use scientific papers that are peer reviewed and scientifically researched, um, and, and that's valuable. That's where the data comes from. But a lot of the policymakers and people working on the ground um, are not necessarily scientists; they're elected officials, right? And so a lot of this very scientific um, uh, jargon and everything uh, tends to go over their heads sometimes. So what they found with film um, was that a visual context was provided, often by the same scientists who authored the papers that they were reading as well. And so that really helped them have a more fuller understanding of the, uh, the complex issues of climate change and the research related to that. And it just makes that, it so much more accessible, doesn't it? It and, does. And, and in language that, you know, everybody can understand. Yeah. Well, that's right. You know, and, and when you, when I do documentaries, what I, I tend to do is, is let the scientists say things um, the way they want. Um, but then I would either have um, a graphic animation or some kind of illustration to, to help understand uh, visually what they're saying or through my narration. Um, I would either introduce in cleaner terms what they were about to say or underscore what they just said, right? Yeah, tra- translation, yeah. <laughs> in, in a way, in a way, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And so because this was a, a first-time um, experiment with the United Nations, we showed it 25 times. It was difficult to have everybody, I think there were like 80,000 delegates that year, to come to one place. So we had all these multiple screenings to try to accommodate as many people as possible. They also made thousands of copies of DVD to make it available to people who couldn't go to a screening so they could still watch it uh, that way. And, um, and so they were pleased with the results. And then they asked me to go to the Arctic and do another similar documentary and to be shown at the following uh, conference, which was in Cancun. That's COP16. Mm-hmm. And, and so I did. I worked with the Canadian Coast Guard and Arctic Net. Uh, we crossed the Northwest Passage, and we documented all the research being done by the, uh, the global network of scientists that were on the ship. And that film was called The Polar Explorer. So that's on a you're on a Canadian Coast Guard icebreaker, is yeah. that right for that trip? Yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that uh, must be an amazing trip to make. Um, oh, unbelievable! It's similar to Antarctica, it's like visiting another planet without leaving Earth. <laughs> yeah, it is so very different up there, isn't it? I've never actually been on the water. I've been, you know, I've been in Cambridge Bay and yeah, in that area, but never. Uh, so I can only imagine just moving through that landscape. Yeah. Must be just. I mean, what what is what are you seeing? What what's what strikes you most from your memories of that trip? Well, the the um, the emptiness, I think, is is the first thing that comes to mind. Um, I was expecting to see a lot more ice uh, crossing the passage, you know, because when Amundsen did it the first time, it took him three years, 
And, <laughs> and for us, it was only three weeks <laughs> to do the same journey, you know. Yeah. Um, but also the silence. You know, the silence is a little deafening, as they say. I mean, you always had the uh, ambient noise of the ship. But at nighttime, if you went out on the deck and uh, and just tried to listen to anything, there wasn't much to hear. And, of course, there's no walls or buildings or trees to bounce noise off of. So if you made a noise, it just kind of disappeared, right? So it, it was a very strange experience that way, and, uh, and I, I just loved it. But the... Um, the interesting thing about that particular journey was we made a crossing through the Prince of Wales Strait, and that had not been done before. So, so that's further north than the usual route. Yeah, a little closer to right? Banks Island on the mm-hmm. west coast there, yeah. Um, yeah. But it was always frozen solid. And even when yeah. we went through, there was a lot of ice there, very thick ice. And we plowed through it. It, it took a long time, but we did it. And um, there were you know, other people that have perhaps got through on canoes or something. But as far as um, a passenger vessel, this was the very first time that uh, a ship went through the Prince of Wales Strait. So to help commemorate that, um, the Canadian Mint sent a photographer to our ship to take a picture of the ship from a helicopter. Uh, The ship, of course, has a helicopter on deck, right? So, um, now, uh, the deal that I had with the um, uh, with the ship, uh, the captain, was anytime the helicopter would go up, we would hitch a ride and get some aerial shots. Uh, mm-hmm. No drones in those days, right? Yeah. 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 So, um, so that was always the deal. And then one day I hear the helicopter go up without me. So I run to the top of the deck and I start waving at the helicopter like, hey, you forgot me. Come back, you know. <laughs> and he just keeps going around in circles. And so I just stood there and watched him for a while. And then he finally came back and landed at the back of the ship. So I came down, went to the back of the ship. And out of the passenger uh, side comes this other guy I've never seen before. I said, who are you? And he said, well, I'm from the Canadian Mint. They asked me to take pictures for the back of the new $50 bill. And I went, oh, isn't that cool? And then I didn't think anything of it uh, for a while after that until the $50 bill came out. And I looked at it, and if you look closely, <laughs> there's only no. one person in the picture. And it's a little soul figure standing on top of the uh, the ship. It's just a black silhouette, but that's me. <laughs> that's fantastic. Wow, yeah. how cool. That's very, very cool. Yeah, that's and that's, cool. Uh, that's a flight well missed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah. So when you're up there, I mean, you're on an icebreaker, obviously, so you're not super close. But are you, what, are you, what are you seeing in terms of wildlife or sea life? Or Well, you're seeing seals and, you know, um, polar bears, uh, but not much else uh, because we're really in water a lot. And, and there wasn't a lot of floating pieces of ice. Like we had to go up to, I think, uh, 78 degrees before we saw some, like, proper icebergs and some sea ice that the polar bears could hunt from. Other than that, um, uh, most of the wildlife we saw was from the water. It was marine life. And, um, and we used um, a very sophisticated system called a rosette. And, and this is um, little tanks that go deep in the water and, and um, bring things up, uh, take measurements of water and that sort of thing. Um, we also had a, uh, uh, monster nets that we would throw in and drag the bottom and bring them up in little canisters. 
Um, and we would see um, various marine life that you expect to see up in the Arctic, but we also discovered a lot that should not be there. Um, a lot of uh, life that is um, traditionally found in, in the Caribbean, but it was making its way up to the Arctic um, because of the, the food chain. Uh, they they mm. found there was more food available up there than there was down there. And, and so we saw things that you don't ordinarily see in the Arctic. And, and that's a, a very funny scene in the film because all the scientists are quite excited about pulling up these um, sponges and, and um, various worms and things that they didn't expect to see in the Arctic before. That's crazy and amazing. And it's amazing that migration is, I mean, that's, I'm assuming that's a fairly rapid shift too. Would that be true? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's um, I, I don't know how long the period of time was, or maybe, um, we haven't scraped the bottom of the uh, the passage the way we mm. did on that trip. But um, yeah. but yeah, they, they discovered a lot of different migratory patterns between um, fish leaving and because the water was getting too warm for them and they went mm. further north to get to the colder water. And and this these, these other species that were coming up from the south um, to get into an area where they didn't have to compete so much. And with less predators too. So. And so, what do we know about? I mean, you you sailed through that ice um, with some difficulty in places. It sounds like, but and where where is that now? Well, yeah, that we're, we're still losing sea ice, and and this is one of the biggest problems about the Arctic, is once you lose um, healthy and old sea ice, it doesn't get replaced uh, that quickly. Like in the winter, of course, you'll have some. Um, some ice coverage like we always do, but it's much thinner. So it disappears more quickly in the summer months um, than the, um, the ice that was there before because the thicker ice takes longer to melt and everything. But, but now that most of that uh, uh, sea ice is gone, the, the old thick sea ice, what, what's coming in its place is, uh, is vanishing even faster. So we're going to see an Arctic, uh, with less and less sea ice, so much so that one day the only way to get to the North Pole will be by boat. Wow. Yeah. And that's that's a predictable thing that's going to happen? Is that, yeah. Yeah, if, if we follow the data from the past 30 years, um, we'll see that gradual progression will lead to that. So that's a documentary you then do for, I was caught with 16, you were saying? Yeah. And... So at some point you shift into something called geodocs, which I'd I'd love you to explain because it's uh, it's an interesting concept. Okay, first I'll give you the academic definition, and then I'll give you the uh, every give us the layman's one too. Yeah, okay. <laughs> please. So a geodoc is um, uh, a multilinear interactive database documentary film project presented on a platform of a geographic information system map of the world. And in layman's terms, <laughs> it's a Google map with films. Oh, cool. Yeah. So you click, click on spots and yeah. movies pop up. And, That's yeah. right. So um, what I did with this project was um, it, it's basically a remediation of the documentary film. And mm -hmm. um, there's lots of different modes and uh, styles and functions of documentary film. Uh, but what this one brings to the picture is, um, is a geolocation perspective. So what you're able to do 
because GIS mapping has um, a couple of affordances that are unique to it. And one is um, spatial analysis and the other is temporal analysis. Uh, you can't do that with a linear documentary when you watch on TV. But when you have similar documentaries all on the same theme, geolocated to where those documentaries take place around the world, then you can compare them. And you can compare them by years. Uh, this is particularly important in the Arctic and Antarctica where we're looking at glaciers. You can look at the various um, documentaries. These are just short films, by the way, right? Three to five minutes long. Bite size. Yeah. Eas easily digestible. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. You, you can watch these documentary shorts in one place from year to year and see the gradual progression. Not just read about the numbers, but actually see it and, and see the differences. Um, that's the, the temporal analysis. Spatial analysis, you can look at um, a situation like uh, flooding or rising sea levels from one continent to the other. And by doing that, you're able to make a pattern and, uh, and discover new data by doing that. Uh, data that neither film individually uh, reveals, but through the comparison, the implicit narrative is revealed. And the example I'd like to give there is um, if you look at uh, the Peterman Glacier in Greenland, a uh, mm -hmm. big chunk of ice broke off there, um, 2010. And then you look down in Antarctica around the same time, uh, the Pine Island Glacier discharged a piece of ice of equal size. So what you can do is, is, is look at the two different sizes of glaciers. And if one is, say, just um, hypothetically um, five times the size of Manhattan and the other is two times the size of Manhattan, uh, while well, neither film says anything about the relation between the two, but by comparing them, you're able to say that the Arctic is melting twice as fast or losing ice twice as fast as the Antarctica by comparing these two films. So that's the, um, that's the spatial analysis. So um, it becomes extremely valuable to um, policymakers and, and researchers uh, to have a geodoc project on a certain theme. Uh, the theme of the project that I use is climate change. And um, um, it's, uh, it was officially adopted by the United Nations at the Marrakesh um, uh, COP conference, the one that took place right after the Paris Climate Summit. And, mm -hmm. um, and now they're using it as a data delivery system throughout all the COP conferences. And you know what they like about it is um, if a delegate is from a certain country, and they're sitting in a negotiation meeting, they can look up the videos in their own country and, and have yeah. this, this visual uh, data presented to them on the spot. So that long gone are the days where they have to attend a screening like we used to do or to get the DVD and watch it. And now it's on their laptop or even their phone. And they can yeah. just click a button and, and watch a three-minute film and, and be informed. That's amazing. I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about, the paper maps. And I know this isn't a paper map, but it does that whole thing about sparking imagination by, you know, running your finger and clicking on this or whatever, you know, that seems yeah. like you've really hit on that sort of same thing, but more, you know, yeah. in a way. Yeah. And what, so, so that specific one, is that, I mean, that's online, obviously, or where, where yeah. do you find that? It's on the, the UN's website. If you go to uh, UNFCCC, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, you go to their website on, in their education page. 
um, you'll find it. Easiest way to find it is just type in Youth Climate Report, UNFCCC. And um, I, I call it Youth Climate Report because the filmmakers, the young reporters, uh, this is where my journalism comes back again, um, mm -hmm. are the ones that are providing the content to this project. So what I do is um, I have these training programs and workshops uh, set up throughout the world. And every year uh, I train a new uh, crop of reporters um, how to make the films as per the UN specifications. And when they create these little three to five minute films, uh, they send it to me. I send it to the UN for approval. And then I codify it and add it to the database. And um, that way the, the entire database grows every year. Uh, allowing for more uh, temporal and spatial analyses. And uh, we also present some of the films, usually not all of them, there's too many, but we pre present some of them at, uh, at every COP conference. That's amazing. And you've been doing this for a while now. This is like yeah. a decade or more that you've been working directly with, with youth as well. I have a lot of reasons to work with youth, but what is it that, that sent you in that direction? It was basically the UN. <laughs> Oh, they, yeah, they yeah. mandated it in a way. Yeah. Like yeah. after the Polar Explorer in 2011, um, they said, okay, next year, go do another film. And I went, okay, just stop. Um, unless you're willing to fund these productions, uh, it's very difficult. And, and I don't want to do that anymore. It's, it's just too hard to, to raise hundreds yeah. of thousands of dollars to make a, a documentary. And so they said, well, okay, maybe we can find another. Uh, approach and what they wanted to do was involve youth more, and and this again was in 2011, where um, the UN put a, a big push on um, hearing youth. This is what they, they they said: young people are marching in the streets and everything, but they don't really seem to have the connection with uh, the COP conferences. So um, they, they wanted to show that uh, that they were listening, um, and they wanted to find out new ways of uh, presenting them at these conferences. So this became a way where they could make these short little films from various parts of the world. And originally we would stitch them together and, in a one hour feature and then try to show them at, at various screenings. And it was around 2014 when I was doing my graduate studies at York uh, that I discovered this, um, uh, this GIS concept. Um, I was working with an experimental program Google had uh, developed, uh, not released yet, but they allowed me access to it. So that was my sandbox for a while. And, uh, and I learned that I could bring in videos, but also provide metadata. Uh, the metadata becomes very um, important as well, because a lot of these scientific papers um, can be added as a PDF to the film that features that research. Yeah, and, fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And basically photographs, all kinds of media uh, can be added to each pin. And, and that makes the entire project uh, more robust and a complete database of information on certain uh, subjects. So um, uh, that's when I did it. And I revealed it for the first time at the Paris Climate Summit. Uh, they, they really liked it. And they set up monitors throughout the hall uh, with headsets. So you could go up and... Uh, touch the screen and watch these videos. And it was really fun to see all the people with the headsets on engaging with the project. So, so clearly there was some interest in it. And um, uh, the UN had a few more suggestions to make about what to include and, and how to present it. 
And so I took it back to the workshop and, and fixed it up again. And then at the next uh, climate summit, that's when they officially adopted it and announced it to the, to the press. I mean, I say it's kind of genius. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's really because it's so, I mean, we're in a time now where there's so much news about changing climate and I, it's almost overwhelming and to actually figure out a way to deliver it that's sort of manageable on your own level, like to sit down and watch an hour, an hour and a half doc, maybe a lot, yeah. you know, but to actually just sort of pick your way through a map. And I think that, I mean, that seems like a, such a smart way to, to go about it, which actually leads me to my next question. Yeah. I mean, how doing all, a lot of the documentary work you do now is obviously very climate focused and how do you balance, you know, obviously the, dire news in there with this uh, a sense of hope uh, it's interesting you use that word because um most reviews of my films say that uh that there's this uh hopefulness uh about my mm. narrative right and and i think there there has to be that um of course you need to be responsible enough to um convey the data that exists um yes it is dire but we need to know what it is, but that doesn't mean it's insurmountable. And the example I, I'd like to give is um, the, the Montreal Protocol. Remember that? This was um, when the ozone hole was discovered back in the mid eighties. Oh yeah. Yeah. And everybody identified the scientific community identified um, CFCs and HFCs, chlorofluorocarbons and hydrofluorocarbons as being the culprit that was eating ozone and causing these giant holes over Antarctica and the Arctic, right? And so they said, this is very serious. It's growing very quickly, and all ultraviolet rays from the sun will get through, and uh, radiation is a, is a, a genuine uh, threat to um, populated parts of the world. They had lots of, of evidence that demonstrated that the highest melanoma rate in the world was at the tip of Argentina and the New Zealand, Australia, mm -hmm. the closest to the edge of the ozone hole. And so the UN put forth the um, the need to ban these substances so they can't be used and continue their damage. Um, so there's one partner left. We got the scientific community on board. We, we got the governments and the United Nations on board but the business community, the people that were using these CFCs, largely in hairspray and other propellant uh, cans, you know, um, they had to be convinced because they didn't want to lose their profits and all that stuff. So the solution was to come up with a new kind of spray, a, a new method of delivery of spray, and that was the little squeeze containers. Mm -hmm. So uh, the business community was convinced that not only is this environmentally better, but it's also cheaper. So, <laughs> helps. Yeah. And they went, cheaper? Uh, we're on board, you know. And, and so here was a global environmental crisis where the world came together and every nation of the world signed the Montreal Protocol. It, yeah, like every single one. Every single one. Everyone. Well, not yeah, at, at the time, but after a couple of years, every single one signed on board. And I know everybody likes to point to the, the Paris Accord saying that was – um, every nation of the world signed that, but, but Montreal did it first. And, um, and because of that, the hole started to shrink. Now the projection at the time was a scientist said it would take about 50 years for the hole to re repair itself. And, um, it took 25 years. So we did have, um, the hole shrink and disappear. It, it's coming back, you know, every now and then we do see some, some more of the hole emerge, 
but the actual repair of it due to the um, the global ban uh, actually worked, and it worked ahead of schedule. When we put our minds to it as a as a planet, yeah. we can do can pull these things off. Yeah. Yeah. Now, climate change is a much bigger issue. There's lots of moving parts in climate change. Um, and the business community is going to take a big hit if we, um, if we do what needs to be done. So it's a tougher sell and it's a bigger problem, but it's not impossible because we did it before. That's where my hope comes from. Fantastic. Before I let you go, I have a question I ask most of our guests. Yeah is uh what is your favorite place in canada what's your happy place maybe you go to oh there's so many there's so many no i know and i'm gonna have to make you drill down to one (laughs) (laughs) well i'd have to say banff okay tell me why oh just the beauty of the nature there uh it it feels like home on a molecular level (laughs) yeah you know when i'm there i just feel so um at peace i i love everything i see um, describe what you're seeing when you talk about bank what do you describe oh that? lake louise the mountains those um those elk that just stand perfectly still look like statues and and, yeah. you, and you think they are statues until they actually move <laughs> and and climbing to the peaks like sulfur mountain going up to the top there and, and the view that that has wow you really feel like you're up on top of the of the earth you know, yeah. and the fresh air and, oh, there's just so much. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I could spend days there. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's a stunningly beautiful place. You know, Canadian geographic does all these photo contests. And I, I always say that the Rockies should be a separate category because you can just point your camera in any direction <laughs> and just get something absolutely stunning. Yeah. It's almost too easy out there. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, I, I, maybe I've just been lucky, but I've always had great weather when I'm there. I, I don't know yeah. if that's a thing of Banff, but <laughs> I've always had yeah. clear blue sky. It's been cold. It's been hot, but it's always been uh, perfect weather. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, chalk went up for Banff. Yeah. Well, Mark Cherry, listen, thank you so much for yeah. all you do and for coming on the Explore podcast. It's been a real pleasure getting to know you. Okay. Thank you, David. Thanks very much. You can learn more about Mark's work at markjterry.com. Thanks so much for listening. Remember to rate and review us wherever you listen. It helps others to find this podcast. Until next time, when we'll explore again, I'm David McGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We left Simpson about June 10th with the Fur Brigade, consisting of a number of yacht boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, it means that in the oral history is very strong. Yeah, we flew all over every inch of the country that it could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, I guess 170.